I will uh, try and repeat a relatively self-contained and simple point several times over the next 40 minutes. So uh, uh, you'll become rather familiar with it. And I'm hoping that by doing this, we will be able to together uh, look at some something uh, new and uh, joyful and uh, e exciting and uh, re reassuring and uh, something about Ibn Arabi, something about ourselves and what to do with them and, uh, and where we are and wish me luck. <laughs> I would like to thank, again, Richard and the organization for the Ibn Arabi Society, the people in it who are exemplary in every way. Uh, they, they bring us so much, constantly. Uh, they, they, they have been at it for so many years and have produced so much. For inviting me to come to speak on this topic in the process, I think I've learned a great deal preparing for today. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. It's a bit of a challenge to speak on something like light and knowledge, just sort of ex nihilo like this. Thank you very much. I liked them so much I couldn't possibly say no because I wouldn't want to miss a chance to be with them. So I've tried to, tried to respond to the request. Um, the idea is that there's something in common in the discourse, in the words that are used either in the Qur'an or by Ibn Arabi whose entire oeuvre may be considered a commentary on the Qur'an in one way or the other. Many people before me have said this. It's true that with every other breath Ibn Arabi is quoting the Qur'an and, and, and reciting the Qur'an. So there's an umbilical connection between the Qur'an and Ibn Arabi's ideas and words. And it seems to me that there is something that joins these three things, these three elements, the water, <coughs> light, and knowledge, in, in this instance, in the Qur'an Ibn Arabi project or discourse. Uh, and this is what we want to explore here. What, what, what is the similarity? What is it that seems to bring them all together and make them aspects of the same reality? From one angle, we can see that uh, if we think of water, light, and knowledge in that order, we go from the most substantial to the least substantial element. You know, water, light, knowledge. But in reality, and I think the point that Ibn Arabi wishes to make is that what actually happens is we go from the least substantial to the most substantial, even though it looks otherwise. The water is of the physical realm. It's beautiful, and we love it, and we feel, we feel refreshed and, 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 and spiritualized, even in its presence. It's beautiful to look at. But the knowledge that it leads to is something that is much more substantial and much more 
enduring than even the and much and ultimately much more beautiful and luminous than the actual uh, threshold that we that we see here, which is the water. So this is this is the, the central idea of the next several minutes that we'll be together talking about these things. How did I get a handle on it? What? Why? Why this approach? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to be at the Ibn Arabi conference in New York a few months ago, and I worked on a paper there which is also about water. Uh, water is, um, you know, hard to tear oneself away from because of its importance in the world. We keep hoping that humanity, we think then that when humanity actually wakes up and sees that it's water that is the most valuable resource on the planet, that will represent a change in the way we all treat each other. We hope for this to happen. But it's a symbol of so many things. So the, the idea was that water in its flowing and luminous quality is a metaphor and more than a metaphor. A metaphor meaning in the sense of spiritual reality or hakayak, as it were is for, for the central notion in Ibn Arabi's thought known as walaya. Water and walaya are, are similarly constituted. Water flows as does walaya flow. The, and the term is sarayan. Right? This, is the, this is the central idea of the way in which the universe is structured according to Ibn Arabi. This sarayani permeation of walaya and light and the divine qualities in the world. It circulates through the cosmos and through the hearts. So this water idea was something that, that stayed with me and because of its luminosity and the relationship between luminosity and knowledge, I thought, well, we'll try and work it out. As I said, please wish me luck because we're working on it. It's a work in progress. And, and in teaching, in teaching the, and especially to undergraduates, one of the things that developed over the years was to ask each group, divide up the group, and ask each group to choose an element. The, the classical elements. Earth, fire, water, and air. And to read the Quran, just focusing on their particular element. Well, I'll tell you, this was the greatest education I ever received. Because the students would come back. And they would tell me all about the way earth moved through the Quran. was transformed in various settings and so forth. And how the, how the divinity spoke through the earth. And then through the water and so on. And so the, the, the insight over the years was that these elements actually become characters. In, in the Quranic uh, uh, literariness, the way the, the way uh, the words of the Quran hang together has to do with the way in which the elements become live agents of action. And so this was a great a great gift that I got from 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 teaching and, and from the students. And so uh, again, from this point of view, the knowledge, in a sense, is also an element, a part of, if you like, what we call, or what Ibn Arabi refers to as the divine names, and these 
these various energies that permeate the universe, that that circulate through the universe, that radiate through the universe. The divine names are then something of a spiritual periodic table of elements that are there that we that we use to try and engage our position in the in the realm of being. And of course, we all know that the elements don't really tell us too much about God, but they are actually virtues to which we we aspire. Their divinity is that they draw us out of the un, ourselves and aim us higher. God remains unknowable, even though we have all the names. So the, the purpose of the names is is other than description. So they are they represent the the energies in this periodic table. How knowledge is a part of this dynamic, this sarayan, this 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 flowing, uh, has to do with again the the Arabic language, which tells us that the the word for knowledge, elm, is better thought of not so much as a as an inert noun, if if you will, but as a process, as knowing. It is really something that is in motion in, in the Arabic language itself. It is, it, is, uh, it is dynamic. It is not just a nominal thing that sits there. So when we speak of God's knowledge, what we're actually speaking of is God's act of knowing. Now, it's God, and it doesn't change, and it's the same from the beginning that has no beginning until the end that has no end, but it's still in operation. And when we engage with these words of the Quran, they are also the same for us. So knowledge doesn't stop at a certain point. It's always verbal. It's always participial. It's always in action. It is, uh, it is uh, flowing like the water, like the light. It's radiating. So here's, a, here's an area in which there is a kind of clear similarity amongst the three elements. <clears throat> the water and light pervade the writings of Ibn Arabi as they do the Quran itself in the poetic literalism of Ibn Arabi's discourse. These everyday realities are frequently involved in specific events of knowing. Knowledge appears to be built upon water and light. Water and light are also essential hormones of the imagination. They are elements of the natural realm that lead us beyond nature. The living natural cosmos, in natural in quotation marks, and everything in it, according to Ibn Arabi, is the imaginal projection of the divine. Imagination is the single most powerful divine activity and it issues in what is frequently referred to in scripture as creation. Humankind participates in this activity through the imagination in the human realm, which issues in the most stirring and transformative instances of knowing. The light of the imagination draws us together to the primal scene of our collective beginning on the day of the covenant, the birthplace of time, history, and consciousness, where we were all gathered in the divine presence. 
in Quranic language, much loved and venerated by Ibn Arabi, where all are created from the same water. The poetic dynamics of water and light in the Quran and Ibn Arabi's writings generates a noetic and experiential music of remembrance, recognition, and knowledge through which the revelation of our common humanity is nourished. Our sense of our common dependence upon the real is articulated and deepened, and our common engagement with the imaginal realm illumined and guided. So the purpose of the talk is to explore the similarities among these three different Quranic elements. And let us try and make some progress with this. It has to do with understanding the idea of metaphor as not mere metaphor. I remember when I in college and taking a literature class and the professor started talking about dead metaphors. And it was a horrible feeling I had that how can such a how can a metaphor be dead? And I think that one of the things that Ibn Arabi and the Quran insist upon is that metaphors are sort of infinitely productive of knowledge. Uh, light is a very common one. An even more common metaphor in, in the Quran uh, is the idea of oneness. It's a divine oneness that pertains to God and therefore is open-ended forever. So believers in the oneness of God never, ever get tired of, of celebrating this divine oneness, which, an idea which from the outside might strike the ungenerous as somewhat limited, right? But in the context of oneness as a metaphor, a, a spiritual signal for the divine, it is endless. So this is the kind of life, I think, that infuses all of the various images in the holy language of the Quran and the holy language of poetry, if, if you will, and, of course, the poetic language of Ibn Arabic. It, it stems from the Quranic insistence that we live in a world that is radiated with meaning. There is no non-meaning in our lives. Everything is is splendid with meaning. That is to say, from the, ver the famous verse 4153, which God makes it clear in Arabic language that he has placed his signs, the signs of his reality, the signs of reality, the signs of truth, in the cosmos, in the macrocosm, in the universe, in creation out there, and in the interiors of human beings, in their souls. And this word, as we all know, sign, is an important word in Islam, this ayah. It also means a verse of the Quran. Right? So this, the, the Quran is very clear about this, that there are actually three books to be read simultaneously. And the mystics took this up with great uh, panache and brio and, and celebrated and luxuriated in the idea of the several books of, uh, in the cosmos, the book of 
creation, the book in, in the horizons, where everything that exists that you encounter is a location for, in Ibn Arabi's words, the revelation of God or the divine self-manifestation. In the inside of human beings, in the souls, the signs have also been deposited. And so we're called upon to think and ponder these signs. And then, of course, the signs that compose the book. The verses of the Quran are called signs. In poetry and all other Arabic literature, verses are called bayt, right? But, uh, which means verse or a little house or tent. If, when, we, when we talk about the Quran, it's always ayah, which means divine, miraculous, portent or sign, along the lines of signs of the biblical signs and wonders, but without the negative implication of signs and wonders in the Bible. It's a, it's a miraculous sign for a number of reasons. We don't have to go into it. But the point is that a believer is also a reader. A believer and a reader have the same vocation. They read the signs of the universe and the signs of the soul and the signs of the book simultaneously. So a big part of these signs, again, is light, knowledge, and water. And they are there for a purpose. They are not mere poetry. They are there because they, we, we experience them in our lives, in all aspects of our lives, and we incorporate them into our consciousness, and they become part of our knowing, our act of knowing. The act of knowing... Uh, there's a. I'll read this passage, and you will know where it's from. Many of you. <clears throat> Essentially, Ibn Arabi believes the apprehending reality is one. This he calls the rational soul. Ibn Arabi insists on the unity of this principle, light, not only in its cosmic functions as the operating mind in all spheres of intellection but even in every individual being wherein it abides. Man hears, feels, tastes, he thinks, memorizes, imagines, and above all, receives knowledge of the unseen world by means of senses and faculties which people call by different names, but which, according to Ibn Arabi, are essentially one, this light. If you this is a quote. If you apprehend sound, you call the apprehending light hearing. If you perceive by sight, you call it seeing, and so on to the end of the senses and faculties. In short, light, according to Ibn Arabi, is everything through which apprehension takes place. Not only that, but everything that is apprehended must have a special relation to the apprehending light, which is God. To put it in other words, God is all that apprehends and all that is apprehended. If a thing cannot be apprehended by a mind of some sort, it can't be a reality. On this remarkable theory, Ibn Arabi bases with no inconsistency both his empirical and his mystical psychology, normal and abnormal. The very light which apprehends colors and sounds and conceives ideas and forms and images is the same as that which directly and immediately perceives reality itself.
There is not, despite the unified field theory that was just indicated in this quotation, and this this has been a, a point of contemplation for all kinds of mystics in every generation of, of Islamic thought, from Ibn Sina's notion of being as the unifying image, from Sohavardi's image of life being the unifying metaphor or image, a metaphor which, remember, is not a metaphor really, it's it's a spiritual reality. But Ibn Arabi, whose who's overarching notion of the unified, unifying substance of reality is mercy, to uh, 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 idea of knowledge and love. And at some point, there seems to be an unspoken, but mainly unspoken agreement that all of these things resonate and mean and imply each other. The more one is, the more one knows, the more one loves, the more one is illumined. And that they all work together in, in, in a harmony kind. So the, but, but despite this unified apparent homogeneity, there are differences in types of knowledge. And this also everyone agrees. One of the, one of the symbols for the various types of knowledge and demonstrations of it in the Quran is, of course, in the story of Joseph. Joseph encounters knowledge in many different ways. He has, he has uh, revelation. He has uh, dreams. He has, uh, as the, as the uh, keeper of the grain, he has to use discursive, sort of uh, computational, distributive, discursive knowledge. He has a second sight. And he has above all, which was a symbol of his uh, prophethood, he has the ability to understand events. Ta'wil hadith This idea of interpretation. Interpretation for Joseph is the centerpiece of uh, knowledge that is the king of the types of knowledge. It's related to the idea of cash, of of revelation, and uh, it is through which revelation occurs. The interpretation of reality uh, in the story of Joseph is brought home when, after being in prison for God knows how long, poor Joseph is finally brought to the to the Pharaoh, uh, who has been troubled by these dreams that he cannot get his courtiers and his ministers and his ulama to interpret for him because they say, well, these dreams, they're, they're crazy. They're just, it's just chaos. Jumbled, jumbled dreams. That's all. We, we have nothing more to say. Don't pay any attention. So in comes Joseph finally. And Joseph is asked by, to interpret the dreams. And of course, Joseph gives him a beautiful, beautiful uh, explanation of these chaotic, disturbed images and dreams that he's been having. The same ability, by the way, as you know, is said about the prophet Muhammad, who has, is the, has the ability to bring the order out of the chaos of these nightmares or jumbled dreams. This is one of the vocations of the prophets, it seems. And the act of interpretation, therefore, is elevated very highly. So when we look at the elements of water, 
and light and knowledge or knowing. Think we're trying to think of it in its participial mode, right? As a dynamic thing that goes on, dynamic along the lines of light and radiant along the uh, lines of light and dynamic and luminescent uh, along the lines of the water. Knowledge and water and light come closer together. Interpretive knowledge is connected to uh, revelational knowledge. To be able to interpret your reality, one's reality, to bring the order out of chaos. So what is it that enabled Joseph to do this? Well, of course, the Quran doesn't say exactly what it is. But in the story, which is the greatest story ever told, you begin to put two and two together that, in fact, sorry to say, it is suffering and hardship that makes Joseph capable of understanding the world. Uh, you know, he's, he is a, his prophecy is particularly distinctive. He is hated by his brothers. He's thrown down a well. He's sold into slavery. He gets to Egypt. He's, he has a new mother and father, and his mother starts to try to seduce him. You know, it just it goes from uh, out of the frying pan into the fire. He's, in, he's innocent. Everybody knows he's innocent. They, because his shirt is torn from the back. Remember in the, in the, in the story? And they all sit and say, oh yes, we see you didn't really uh, advance upon your mother. She advanced upon you because you were trying to leave and she grabbed your shirt and, it, 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 and she ripped it. Nonetheless, we'll put you in jail. Because you're a Hebrew slave. And you probably would have attacked her at some point anyway. So he goes into prison, and this is where he is for, you know, for God knows how long again, until, until he's finally called into the presence of the, of the Pharaoh. But he still has this suffering in his life. It's just, it's just been horrible. Not only the suffering of Joseph, but the suffering of, of Jacob, his father, is in some senses trumps the suffering of Joseph. And Jacob also has a kind of cash fee intuition or knowledge. It's not, it's not as in hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutical as, as Joseph's particular uh, uh, demonstration of knowledge. That's certainly not Joseph's only demonstration of knowledge in, in the story. But Jacob, if you recall, uh, who has been languishing all these very years because of love for his, his son, which is also a kind of knowledge, has, uh, back in Canaan land, uh, which is undergoing a horrible drought, by the way, there's no grain and there's, uh, there's no food for anyone. He sent those, those uh, scandalous brothers down to Egypt to, to ask for some foreign aid from Egypt, bring some grain back to Canaan. And they, of course, unbeknownst to them, have to deal with the brother that they sold down the river, you know, 25 years earlier. It's all a magnificent story. But in the meantime, J Jacob has gone blind through his grief and weeping for the loss of his sons, Benjamin and, 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 and uh, Joseph. As the Quran says, his tears washed out the color of his eyes. 
so he could no longer see. Right? This was his, his great grief. Finally, I mean, I'm skipping over a lot of things in the Joseph story. Go read it yourselves, and uh, it's magnificent. When the, when the brothers come for the last time, uh, you know the story. Joseph gives them the, his shirt, this famous shirt that is also a character in the crowd. And he said, when you, get, when you get back to my father, put this shirt on his eyes so he can regain his eyesight. Well, this knowledge and this shirt, of course, is in the Quran so strong, so powerful, that no sooner do the brothers cross the imaginary line between Egypt and Canaan than there's a kind of a cinematic cutaway, and we see Jacob back in his tent, in the midst of his flocks and his family. He raises up in, in his, from his bed and says, I detect the scent of Joseph. This is, they're still hundreds of kilometers away. And, and then the, the boys come back, these brothers of Joseph come back, and put the, put the shirt and his eyesight returns. The, another, another kind of knowledge from his suffering emerges from jo Joseph's suffering. He's not frequently looked at for his suffering, but I think it's important because the knowledge and the suffering are so connected. Another kind of knowledge from his suffering is that while he had the chance to do whatever he wanted to with his, with his brothers who betrayed him, who would have preferred to see him dead, but didn't, for some accidentally allowed him to, li to live, he forgave them. Joseph forgave these brothers. It's one of the most miraculous stories in Scripture. Uh, Kenneth Craig published a book on this a few years ago, uh, in which he discusses the Palestinian and, and uh, Israeli issue, and uses Joseph as a central uh, metaphor. The title of that book is called Iron in the Soul. Iron in the Soul. Joseph has iron in the soul. Iron that is normally used for weapons to make swords and chain mail and all of these things is inside him which gives him the strength to forgive his brothers. This is a miracle. So this is also from a kind of knowledge that is produced through this suffering. And there's a, a hadith that you find very frequently in the Shi'i writings, the Shi'i tafsir, and, and the Shi'i hadith, which says, uh, our knowledge, or our cause, either one, it can be our cause, amr, or our knowledge, elm, is exceedingly difficult. Sa'ab mustasib. Sa'ab mustasib. The only people who can understand it is a messenger who's been sent by God. The angels who are near, Mukarabun, or a believer whose heart has been kneaded through trial and test so that the leather of the heart has become soft and can be penetrated by knowledge. So this is the connection between hardship and suffering 
and, and, and knowing. <clears throat> this brings us straight to the immutable entities. I'm sure you predicted this. <laughs> uh, have a drink. Make sure I didn't skip something. <laughs> no, well, all right. Hmm? No, sorry. The covenant, the day of the covenant. We mentioned it before. At verse seven one seventy two, this is also on the will be in part of the part of the uh, workshop that we have later this afternoon. This scenario, this very beautiful, interesting characteristically Quranic, it doesn't exist, I don't know if there's another story like this someplace else, it's an origin myth, it's in the Quran, God, before time and space existed in the Quran, in this timeless and spaceless occasion, takes from the children of Adam, from their loins, their potential. The children of Adam is in the way the Quran says humanity. And as you know, the Quran is also different because it's, as a holy scripture, it's distinctive because one of its major themes is humanity. Humanity occurs in the Quran with a frequency unmatched in any other scripture. It is almost a sacramental value. Is it humanity, is men, mankind, human beings? This is a huge, huge topic. So it's no surprise to find here in Surah 7 something that deals with humanity, which is called here the children of Adam, and not Insan or Anas, but the children of Adam. Takes from the children of Adam, all of the, which means here all of the future generations of those human beings who will live. So it's billions upon billions of entities, right? That he takes from their loins, and they're all arrayed in, uh, before, in the presence of God. And God then says, "Am I not your Lord?" To them, all. and they all instantly respond, "Yes, indeed. Yea, verily." Completely unanimous. Everyone is there. Now, you know, th this is a much-loved um, myth, mythim, uh, tale in the Qur'an. It's taken literally in the Islamic worldview as something that happened. It may not be historically, we may not be able to find vestiges of it because conveniently it occurred before time and place. So we're relieved of trying to find archaeological evidence for this. But it is as real as the sun rise in the morning. This is, no one doubts. It is, it is the myth of unity. I mean, yes, God has a sort of a walk-on part there. <laughs> in this particular opera, God is actually just part of the furniture you might say. It is important. What is important is that who God addresses. 
He is addressing everyone. All types of humanity. Every, everyone who's ever lived or who ever will live. We are all united in the same spot. This is the meaning of this myth. That, 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 there, is a, that there is a primordial unity in humanity that needs to be remembered. And you know that remembrance, of course, is a major theme of the Qur'an. And what we remember are the names of God, yes, uh, the various attributes of God. They are, among certain Sufi circles, they're repeated over and over again and uh, become as prayer. But there's an actual point to remember. And the thing to remember is that moment, is when we were all united together. The pilgrimage, the Hajj, is a, a, a replication of that moment. You know, when people are together and, and united, this is a reaffirmation of that originary unity. And this is an extremely important message of the Qur'an. We talk about the ayan, and we, it was excellent this morning hearing about, about the nature of the immutable entity, entities, the ayan athabita, and why they are not platonic, and why they are platonic. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there, there seems to be some fragrance of Plato, in, in the, but there also seems to be something very distinctive. And the point I'd like to make before I forget it <laughs> is that I think the distinctive quality of the ayan comes from the covenant myth in the Quran. I think that the seeds of all future beings is really the inspiration. Ibn Arabi tells us he got the, the technical term from the Mu'tazila. God bless the Mu'tazila, you know. But, and he applied it to his vision, which is deeply Quranic, of course. And I think that the inspiration is really this viriyatahum, that the ayan represent a more scientific, if you like, somewhat scientistic way of speaking about this mythic reality in, in, the, in the Quran. So it's somewhat platonic. But yet it's very Islamic. And it's pure, it's pure genius on the part of Ibn Arabi to take this term, which has, you know, philosophic uh, weight and value, and apply it. In the end, the miracle happens that it turns out that Ibn Arabi's use of the, of the theme, the Ayana Thabita, even though it sounds scientific, remains just as mythic as, as the as the of the of the 7172. It's amazing. But it gives us some kind of sense that we are we are on the trail of bankable knowledge. And it is bankable knowledge because it is these Ayanathabita that receive the flowing, radiating light which is described in Ibn Arabi and the Fasus with this great verb that doesn't exist in Hans Ver. I actually had to go to an Arabic dictionary to find it. I'd never seen it before. Infahak. Infahak. Which is like a, a radiating 
liquid light water that fills up the ayan, the he speaks about, and then they become real, and they're able to contemplate themselves and contemplate God, and they respond and fulfill the the tension in the Kunta Kanza Makfian, I was a hidden treasure uh, hadith, which allows God then to be recognized after the flowing of the light, not the water, the flowing of the light into the vessels of the Ayana Sabita. It is no accident that Ain means entity and spring, where a source of water comes up. Right? This is this is something that would not have been lost on Ibn Arabi, that he's talking about an actual physical spring of water and a spring of being. Of course, the plurals are different, but nonetheless, the 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 the, uh, the sound and the word are are too close to have been accidental. So I I believe that it is this this vision of our originary unity as human beings that, that is, has somehow or another informed Ibn Arabi's famous and uh, sometimes vexing uh, theory of light. I, uh, uh, theory of light and theory of, of, uh, of the Ayana Thabita. Now, the, the subtitle of the talk was Towards an Ecology of Imagination. Well, we have imagination, and, uh, you know, it's our gift. We, it's one of the ways in which we commune with divinity, according to the teachings of Ibn Arabi. And so, uh, but Ibn Arabi also says that there are kinds of imagination. There are lower kinds that are unworthy, that we may better describe as mere fancy. And there are types of imagination that are, that are elevating and edifying. And when you were using the word ecology of imagination, of course I was thinking of some way to keep us away from the unworthier modes of imagination and to lead us toward the more edifying and elevating modes of imagination. Light is important, again, because uh, humanity is almost as uh, dynamic as light and exists in the same two forms as light does, right? Light as waves, as a community of humanity, and light as individuals, as particles, right? So we're all together. We all share the structure of light in some way or another. Light and humans have a lot in common. And because of the way in which the ayana athabita leave the realm of non-existence and come into the realm of existence, and they're always there, he tells us, time is really an illusion. Time has no wujud, right, at all. The ayana are still as close to us as they ever were. We are just unfolding ourselves in, uh, in the reality of God. Time is that which keeps everything from happening at once, in other words. <laughs> like, but, it, it's, it, but in reality, time is, time is, is non-existent. So the light that washes through us at all times now is the same light that is used to purify the imagination and to, to make it focus toward the worthier deployment of the imagination. And to make it, to dramatize it, uh, the, the Islamic tradition says that 
Prayer is another way of knowledge. Prayer is a way of purifying your imagination. Prayer was, as you know, extremely important to Ibn Arabi, the, the Salat, especially the five times a day prayer. Is like the Prophet called it a river that flows by the house of the believer, and, and the believer who then is able to bathe five times a day in the river of Salat to purify the soul and the imagination. Purity is a difficult word these days because it's so susceptible of being misused. No. It, in fact, my students yell at me if I use the word. We don't think in terms of purity anymore. That's, that's your generation. That's all over with. Purity, because they see these experiments in ethnic cleansing and purity and, you know, pure this and pure that. And they had rightly become a, a little bit careful about notions of purity. Well, this is exactly what the Quran and Ibn Arabi wish us to see. Because if we go back to the day of the covenant, when we were all gathered there together, we were everything. It was multiplicity, squared. It was cosmopolitanism, you know, before it began. It was hybridity to the max. It was, everyone was there. Black, white, yellow, red. Uh, all, all sorts of future generations. So the, the, the purity is actually a paradox in this instance. And this is where the hygiene of the imagination occurs. To know that we all come from the same source, that the notion of purity has to do with our multiplicity and not with our sameness, with our variety and not as our, in our uniformity. And this is, this is the point that the knowledge and the light and the water appear to be leading us towards. Um, Just a final word. Unless that was it. Uh, to return to the problem of, of, of the language and how, what, it, what its function is. A, a mythic or a poetic or a spiritual language. It is, it is important that we, that we recognize that these symbols and images have a reality that are beyond our ability to see directly. That they themselves have a nourishing quality. That we read them and we immerse ourselves in, in the language of the Quran and the teachings of Ibn Arabi. And these ideas stay with us, even if we don't immediately feel satisfied that we understand everything that's being said. They continue, even in our subconscious, this is a Jungian maxim, they continue to, to be part of who we are and to work silently in the background. Just because they are invisible or because we don't have a one-to-one -one correspondence doesn't mean that they are, in fact, not only real, because as Corban taught us, uh, you know, the... Uh, the uh, the world of uh, uh, the alam mithal or khayal is, even though we call it an imaginal realm, it is actually more real than our world right in the here and now. So this is this is the realm to which these elements, 
of the divine periodic table, the hormones of the imagination are drawing us so that we can regain the vision of our original human unity. Thank you. <laughs>